what's the scariest um, children's book you've ever read? Wanjiku. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? The scariest children's I'm going to I'm not going to answer the question you've asked me. And instead, I'm going to answer the scariest children's story I've ever imagined is one that you and I imagined together early on in the time of corona when everybody was making baking, do you remember? And I was making pizza dough from scratch, sourdough pizza dough, and the thing just wouldn't stop rising. <laughs> And it just kept rising and rising and it was like bubbly and like aggressive. <laughs> and you and I were talking on the phone and I, and I think you were like, imagine if the pizza dough just takes over the house and like gobbles us all up. And all of a sudden it felt very menacing and possible because also we are in 2020. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is... You have created another pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So that's the most frightening children's story that I have that comes to mind. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> and so the other question would be: You and Sitawa have um, have been on stage together for the longest time, and mm-hmm. um, she was supposed to be here but couldn't join us, unfortunately. Um, so I'm curious: um, Which was the one part that Sitawa played that you would have loved to play? Oh, wow. I don't even think that it's possible to answer that. You know, Sitawa is so Sitawa. You can't possibly imagine doing anything that she's done in a way that could even echo what she did. Do you know what I mean? Like she just imbues everything with such like stickiness, like sticky oh. meaning like it's memorable and like um, delicious and like and, 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 and distinct. You wouldn't even dream of coveting. You just are sitting like enjoying and in awe. Oh, yeah. I love that. I love that. So, welcome guys to the NBO MTI podcast and this is the backstage series where I your host Wanchukum of Ganga take you through take you backstage to meet the NBO participants and talk about their lives and their artistic practices. Today on in studio in our makeshift Zoom studio, <laughs> we have the most amazing guests so far. She is one of my most favorite people in the world, Alea Kasam. Um, welcome. Thank you, Anjiku. You are my treat in the middle of a really like intense workday. This is the pocket of joy and like breath of fresh air. So thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you, Alea. You see why she's my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Alea. So, um... How about you tell the listeners about about yourself and they can get to know why I love you so much. Um, tell them about yourself, your practices, just anything you'd like us to know. And um, let's throw in um, a secret desire that you've had for the future. <laughs> cool. So... Yesterday, um, my wonderful co-collaborator, Laura Ekumbo, was taking us through um, an exercise, a performance exercise that involved asking the question, you know, who are you? Can you introduce yourself? And um, she asked us the question at the beginning and we introduced ourselves. And then she led us through a series of exercises that were rooted in memory. And then she asked us the question again. And I, with her help, I saw myself in a different way. And all my memories were really rooted in love, in this feeling of being loved and expressing love. And I really, for the first time, understood that who I am and what I do is an expression of love. So if you had asked me this question even a year ago, I would have said, I'm someone who writes, I'm someone who performs, 
I'm someone who makes jewelry. I'm someone who um, makes samosas. <laughs> but and then if and then if you'd have asked me this question like a week ago, I'd have said I'm a maker. I make things. But now I realize I'm a lover, and making things is an expression of that love. It is um, an outlet for feeling loved and for hopefully like connecting through love. Um, so yeah, I think that's why I'm. And I'm also, I'm also the Masi, which is a very specific relationship of my little nephew. Uh, Muda, he calls himself Muda. I call him Mitu. And Masi means sisters. Uh, 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 Masi means mother's sister. So I am Mitu's mother's sister. It's a, I can, I'm only his Masi. I, I'm nobody else's Masi. And I think that's really beautiful. <laughs> oh, it's just the cutest child. And I just love your relationship. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> Thank oh. you for sharing that, Alea. That is just so profound and beautiful. And I'm just glad to hear. I feel the love every time I talk to you. So it's so true. <laughs> and um, the next stage of the conversation is talking about the NBOMTI and um, your journey with it and what you've carried with you so far. How has your journey been and what is the one thing you've taken with you from this whole experience? Wow. Gosh, Wanjiku, it's been several years because I was, I met, where do I even begin with this story? So when I, when I first met Nairobi MTI in the state that it was, whether it was idea or, you know, whatever it was, I was primarily a nonfiction writer. I was primarily a blogger. And at that point in my life, and still, I was really exploring my identity as a Kenyan woman with of Asian heritage. I was really looking into kind of trying to understand my history and space of belonging um, and writing quite a lot about that. And it was that writing that, which is where Eric and I met in a garden somewhere. <laughs> and he was like, I have, I'm doing this thing. And this is one of the stories that I've, I've been really interested in um and would you be interested as well and I am a yes person so without thinking I just said yes and um at the time I was working at an agency an advertising agency and I remember being really anxious about asking for five days off so that I could go and attend the workshop because advertising doesn't make space for you in that way for your dreams you're a factory worker you know, but they gave me the time off and I entered this room and it was at the elephant and there was a bunch of the most incredible writers in there. And, um, and it, at that point it was an experiment. And this is a story that had been the idea of this brown, black love story had been knocking around in my heart for a long time. I had been writing it in my head for a long time. It's something that I just, um, on a personal level, there's a way in which um, we've seen so much fusion with food um, and even with language, but not as much with music and dance that I would expect. And I think that love reveals things about us and is an opportunity for, for connection that um, is interesting and challenging. So, so of course, mind you, I'm not a fiction writer at this point. I'm a nonfiction writer. So so we're in this big, mad experiment, which is what does it look like to try and write a musical theater piece that is, you know, somehow informed by and rooted here? And um, I have this idea in my head of this brown, black love story, and I start kind of dreaming it up. And oh, gosh, I remember so distinctly. And it was it was I actually cried and I'm so ashamed, but I actually cried in that process because it's a story that means so much to me, but it was so different. It's been it's been a very difficult process. I've, you know, the learning of a whole new form um, is not an easy one, especially when you don't have the time to dedicate to it and you're trying to earn a living and you know, all the hustle manenos. Roberta said, Alea, you are trying to build a mansion. Start with a shed. 
And so I began with like a small casino, you know, just, she's like, just do three scenes, just begin there. And so we began there. And the story at that point wasn't even what it is now. And every time I sort of started losing hope, you know, um, Eric would energize me <laughs> with his infectious energy and, and make you feel like, you're, you know, we can do this, we can do this. And that little three scenes then over time developed and developed and developed. And I got involved with the Field Marshal Madoni Weaver Bird um, musical. And, you know, a couple of times a year, there's this little bubble of possibility, of freedom, of creative electricity where you're surrounded by these incredible creatives, different different um, uh, disciplines, you know, everyone sounding and feeling so different. And like it in 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 a in a country like this where there aren't many spaces for that that felt incredibly precious so the things that i would really take away cuz that's the question that you really asked me i think was was one about trusting the process um i went from trying to build a shed a three scene shed to now actually having two musicals that are uh, sound and feel very different that have story and flavor and music and two very different collaborative energies. Um, what I love so much about musical theater is musicians do not exist in their head. They exist in play and in, and in, in sound and in the making. As a writer, I sometimes really get stuck in my head and to be around musicians who are like, let's just try it. And they just jam. Oh my God, that is so liberating and so wonderful. And like, I get to kind of live out my fantasy a little bit of being like a, a singer. So in the studio, I'm singing because there's nobody else there to sing. And in that moment, I can be Anjali. I can be, you know, whoever I want to be. And like, oh, it's lovely. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah. I've actually seen you guys, I've had the privilege of seeing you guys performing because of the workshop set up. We always share our work. And um, it's always very interesting seeing you in the light of a musician, now that you've said it. It's always so beautiful seeing you playing all those parts and um, seeing your storytelling background like just come out in full, you know, full awesomeness. <laughs> so um, you've mentioned one of your characters, Anjali. And um, without giving away too much, could you tell us which one of your characters is your favorite in the Panipuri story uh, and why? So the Panipuri story, my favorite character for sure right now is um, Anjali's mom. So the story is a love story between Anjali and Moas, um, who are from different um, communities. And Anjali's mom, um, who imagine I've even forgotten her name. Uh, I've forgotten her name, but she exists in, um, I can see her in the middle of the night. She's there in the, in the hotel kitchen in this draft that we have now, which by the way, it might be very different by the time you see it. Um, she's sneaking a drink because she's like, this whole night has been ridiculous. And there's a line where she's like, she asks, um, there's a line where she asks, she asks the mother of Moas, Penina, she's like, when was the last time you ate white, you let yourself eat white bread? And she's there with her like whiskey in her hand. And she's, she just reminds me of, she reminds me of this woman who has just really taken all the fucks out of her pocket. She's just reached that age where she's done. And yet she doesn't want her daughter to have to go through what she went through. You know, like she's feisty and she's, um, but she somehow had to bend herself a little bit because the world didn't, the world wasn't ready for her. And she'll be damned if she's going to let that happen to her daughter. 
And I love that. It's very beautiful. She's her daughter's like conspirator. I love that. I love how if ever there was an like a dream of what you want to become as a mother, like personally, that is like the vision of wisdom and greatness that she represents. To me, she's a very beautiful character. Talking about uh, Panipuri, are there any challenges that you've gone through in the writing that you'd feel comfortable sharing and how, how did you overcome them or how are you learning to overcome them? Because it's also a journey. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, this is, um, for me as a writer, one of the biggest things that gets in my way is wanting to, is me, actually, and my opinions. Um, Because I have opinions. And sometimes the opinions get in the way of the story. And because I really want to do service to this issue, it's really important. This is not a story that is, that is told, that has been told a lot. Um, and I don't want it to be one of those stereotypical stories. The story that we see often is not really one of triumph. It tends to be one of the love, the love story just, breaks apart um so it's like how do you how do you give the context of how how these two people ended up in uh like existentially ended up in a wedding hall kissing and it being such a problem how did we get here right um and how we got here there's 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 so much history behind that and how do you tell a story that 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 in some way reveals that history but doesn't become an a a mm. lesson on like a mm. lecture. Yeah. Do you know it's, what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of juggling all these balls in the air where you've got the character, the story, and then you've got the thing that me as a writer I really want to do. <laughs> and letting go a little bit of the of the thing that I want to do, you know, and learning how to do that. It's a very different form from nonfiction. Like creative nonfiction, you aren't in service to your characters in the same way as you are in fiction. Creative nonfiction, you're trying to say something in a much more overt way, you know, in an essay form. So sometimes my my th- that that interference is something I'm having to to unlearn. And it's actually like a really big challenge because I also get in my own way whenever I write a lot. Because there's there's a lot going on in your head. You're like, am I doing damage? Am I, what am I doing? You know, you want to create a safe space, and then the story just wants to exist in its own space. And then the funny thing is, sometimes when I let the story be, it ends up giving me the safety I needed. It ends up just being the thing it wanted to be, and I'm like, yeah, it was like for instance with you, it comes from a place of love. So it will always rest in a place of love, you know? Yeah, but it's a it's a hard balance to strike. Also, Wanjiku, you know, what one of the things you, you talked about, I don't know if you if one of the specific challenges that has that I that I'm grappling with a little bit now. I've always been grappling with it, but I it's become a little bit more restless in my belly, you know, is with what's happening with the Black Lives Matters movement around the world, but but rooted in, in the States, and the interrogation around our relationship with racism and the complicity also. You know, it, it, I the last couple of months have revealed to me Things about the Indian community here that I, I mean, I always in, like inherently knew, but are uncomfortable and that I'm really interested in challenging. But the question is, I'm very, very anxious about creating a story that does harm. Like I'm very anxious. And part of the biggest, well, actually, if I'm honest, the biggest challenge is me not feeling like I have done enough work on myself in order to be able to this 
to tell the story in a way that it doesn't do harm, but instead, like, like oh. it creates freedom. Yeah, I totally get you because it's it's a space I'm I've actually been in very recently because I was tackling a story about loneliness and that question of am I grown enough as a human to actually tackle this? You know, and I remember when I was, when we were doing Eric's episode, he said like people who are writing about Corona now, he, he feels like. Corona should be a thing that you should write about after, like you've you've gotten time to actually observe it from the outside. But there's also a, a thing that Mugambi said that where he said that the struggle within you as an artist is the amount of care that you hold for your piece of art, you know, the amount of love that you have for your material. And I feel like that's a thing I constantly want to hold on to, you know, because honestly from where I'm standing right now, I feel like if we stop ourselves with that one thing, like, are we grown enough? Because that's usually, I think, a thing that burdens a lot of artists. We will never write in our young, you know, uh, <laughs> this age of youth, and we'll end up writing when we're... No one has the time to write when they're 60, and, you know, you're tired, and you want to... just want to take a break from... You know, you want to enjoy... You want to take in. So it's actually like a really hard balance. I've <laughs> not gotten an answer. But we really need to be more forgiving of ourselves as artists. And and have grace. I mean, I think part of the thing is that these stories feel important to us. And because, you know, we've been told that we operate, and in some ways it is true that there's a, there's a scarcity mentality, which is... This may I may only have the opportunity to write one musical, okay? Because you don't there's no there's not not enough space for you to write many, yeah? Because there are many stories that need to be told, right? So what are you going to do with your one chance? And are you going to do it properly? You have been given the chance. Are you going to do it properly? And when when that theater is filled with little Anjali's, right? And that theater is filled with Anjali's and Anjali's dad, <clears throat> all these Indian fathers, right? Like, what is the chance that you've been given? What is it going to do? Is it just going to be like, ha ha, that was a great story? Or are you actually going to do something that in some way, like, influences and shapes the communities that you belong to in a way that you really want to? You know what I mean? So there's, an, there's like an, an urgency and a weight to, I think, the storytelling that is just a reality that we're grappling with. And anybody that says, free yourself, cool. And also, this is just the reality of what we're grappling with. It's, it's, it's unfair when you look at it that we, like you mentioned, Black Lives Matter movement. And I've been seeing how people, right now, a lot of white establishments are trying to make space, try to rectify. And just looking back and thinking of all the, like, all the few the few uh, movies by especially female, black female directors that I've watched that have been amazing. And it's true. That's the only chance she got. That's it. She did not make another movie. And you're like, how did this person not make another movie? And that person has like 50 movies that cannot even compare to this one movie. So it's actually like really unfair. And it, but we, we move on. <laughs> And we keep creating. And keep growing. I mean, I think we keep growing the space, which is what Nairobi MTI is doing, which is to say previous, like it's incubating so many musicals. And the hope is that it's showing all the many ways that things can exist and creating space for more. So the hope is that it won't be just one, that there'll be actually opportunity and possibility for many. You mentioned being, um, being, a, a yes person, which is something I really love about you because you you just face risk in the face and you're like, let's do this, let's wrestle. And um, <laughs> the thing about, so NBOMTI, <laughs> you're a nonfiction writer and this is like a completely different like background for you basically. So what are the lessons that you have, that have shaped that transition for you? I think um, not only am I a nonfiction writer, but, you know, my my primary, my, my first expression as a nonfiction writer was uh, was in the blog world. 
and it was kind of thousand-word essays, so to speak. Can I interrupt you? Sorry, <laughs> I love your blog, so please just plug it in here so that <laughs> people can oh. also go and check it out. <laughs> Thank you. It's not as active as it once was, but you'll find lots of things from the past on it. It's called chanyado.wordpress.com, C-H-A-N-Y-A-D-O.wordpress.com. And uh, Nanjala Nyabola described it as kind of a running autobiography um, of, of it's sort of like what the political means to a person, you know, over the course of a period of time in Kenya. Um, and that's kind of been a really nice guide as to how to see my work in that frame. And chanyado means shade. And I sort of imagine it as if I'm sitting under a tree, seeking a little bit of respite from the sun and just taking a moment to kind of look at the world in a different way and experience things in a different way. And, you know, you see the dust particles like dancing in the rays of light that you never would normally see when you're rushing around in your life. So that's kind of what chanyado represents. Um, and it's actually pronounced chayo, but everybody pronounces a chanyado. So here we go. So I, you know, the thing about that form is that you, uh, so first of all, it's, it's contained, okay, a thousand words. You are drawing from your own life and from what's happening around you. Um, it's a much more kind of rapid form. So you create work, you release it. And then this is the, uh, the, the perils of being an internet age writer. You post it and you immediately get your gratification. You get your feedback. You get a sense of what you, that connection is immediate. This is how I learned to be a writer to be instantly connected to my audience. And I love that. Now, when you're writing a musical, I have been writing this musical for now, like two and a half, I don't know, three years. I don't know, I've lost track. <laughs> okay, four years, four years. This thing is a marathon. We haven't even reached the point at which we are ready for, like for a director to come at it. Do you know what I mean? This is not a one, this is not a thousand word blog post. <laughs> Dorothy, we are no longer in Oz or Kansas. Is it Kansas? Oz? I don't remember. It's Kansas. So that, that form, I mean, has been challenging. And I have, I mean, really, I can only say I have just learned to trust the process. That is the, I, that is the, the most important lesson. And for me, that has been a lesson that has informed my, my artistic practice and all the other elements as well. So it isn't really even about fiction or nonfiction. It's just to say, ride with it and play. I love that. Ride with it and play. And speaking about that, I can actually see it in what you have been up to during this like period, because you are one of the few people that rode Corona and decided, I'm a play, you know? <laughs> so um, you and Sitawa are, you had like shows in the beginning of the year, right? So, um, and they were virtual. So how about you talk to us about those shows? Yeah. So the journey actually began um, in March. The first thing that became very apparent, you know, especially when we, when, it wasn't a lockdown, but whatever it was that happened in, 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 in Kenya at that time, which a restriction of movement and the curfew and whatnot meant that there were certain artistic um, disciplines that became unviable. And um, if you were a gig musician, that's it. You know, you were now in trouble because there were no gigs. Sitawa and I have for many years worked with Boaz, uh, Jagingo and Willy Rama. And um, they're incredible musicians and they've been a core to, to the work that we do together. And so, you know, we thought very early on, we wanted to do something that in some way could offer a kind of financial buffer for Boaz and Willie because we, we, we knew that we were in for a couple of months. We didn't know how long, but we knew for a couple of months where there would be no gatherings, there would be no gigs. How are you, as a gig musician, going to be able to survive? As a writer, I can survive. It's hard, but there's there's ways. As a gig musician, and the live, the the live gigs hadn't really begun yet. 
by then. You know, nobody was really doing that yet. So we did an Instagram show, an Instagram live show. I think it was it's like Sitawa set up an Instagram account for that. Who child, it was challenging. So we did, we did a show for Boaz and Willie, and it was a fundraising show where we said, you know, we're going to do the best of, we're going to pick our most beloved pieces and it's going to be messy and we're just, the internet's going to lag and it's going to be chaotic and we're going to have fun. And if you want to contribute, just send some money to this number. And we raised, um, you know, we raised a good amount of money and we had so much fun. Satawa and I love being on stage. And I love working with Satawa. And I know that Satawa loves to work with me. And we love doing the work. The challenge of being a theater practitioner in Kenya is that you have to do everything. You have to do the logistics. You have to do the marketing. You have to do the production. You know, those are the things that are exhausting. Now, all of a sudden, Corona offered us an opportunity to play, to just sit in the work without having to worry about the marketing and the logistics. And the, all we needed was our internet screen. And whoever showed up, showed up. And whoever didn't, didn't. And we could just sit in the work and create new work, you know, and, and just listen and play. And so after the IG show, Sitao and I, we would we would talk a lot about what was going on and like, both of us are really interested in in the narratives that are are existing both around the world and here. And we could already hear a certain narrative coming out of like, oh, the dead are going to be lining the streets of Africa, Sijuin Nini. And we were just like, we reject this. We absolutely reject this. And the truth is the narratives are being written now. Like we can see it happening. And they're doing it. We must be part of that narrative and we must tell that story and bullshit. And also, Wanjiku, let me tell you another thing. Sorry, I've become very passionate about this all of a sudden. Handwashing is not a new concept to us here. In fact, the West have a lot to learn from us. And that was the other thing is that we have gifts to give the world, right? Like the places that we should be looking for answers is not there. It's here. We have it here and we have it from before. If we listen to the women and the people that came before us, they also have the lessons, right? This idea of collective care, of communal care, of mutual aid, of this idea that like none of us is going to be okay unless we make sure all of us is okay. This is not a foreign concept to us. This is core to who we are, right? And it's part of, I think, why we've endured this in the ways that we have. So we're like, okay, world, come and listen. We have something to say. And um, we began building out these virtual shows that, that, that meant that we were writing more material. We were in play because we didn't have to hire a stage. We didn't have to pay for lights. Um, all we needed was whatever props we had around us, my spangly glasses, Sitawa's black hat, you know, um, and then we just invited people to join. And so what happened is that a community started forming around and a lot of the community was other creative practitioners, you know, and there are some people who write in the frothing heat of the moment. And there are some people who need time to look back. And um, Sitawa has shown me that has taught me how to write in the frothing heat, heat of the moment. Um. And so for those who aren't able to, but need a creative energizing, this was also a space for them to gather and commune around and a space of breath, you know? So that's kind of how it began. And then I think we've done either three or four shows virtually on Zoom and each one has different material and... Um, uh, we we script like we research, we write, we script, we now play around with all kinds of things, which is really it's it's just fun. It just it's just playing. That sounds that sounds amazing. And um, how is it different from the stage? Is there any change? Do you feel any difference in being in your house and then performing? Because I know like there's the the surge of energy, the adrenaline when you're performing on top, on a stage. So I've always been curious, how does it feel performing 
like in your house because that's also that also comes with a certain certain safety you know i mean i would all i i love the stage the thing about first of all we're all tired of the screen aren't we wanjiku and then it's really a lot of work to connect to people because i'm staring at a little thing over here and you know like i can't see eyes and that's exhausting it's much more demanding of you as a performer because there's nothing that's feeding you first of all because the energy of an audience is not present in the way that it would be normally and because you can't look at the chat bar where people are encouraging you because you're you have to be in the material right so you can't even those cues those cues that tell us that i'm with you you don't you can't experience those cues and then you have annoying things like lags like oh did i lose her like oh she's frozen like oh i can't hear you or oh my god it's frustrating to no end but you know what there it does do which i love is we've create what we do with our shows is we create a place for co-creation now because people are in the room and there's a chat bar we actually write with the audience so we invite them into our process and uh we did a show like a very small show with pace entangled and we did a piece uh, we invited um participants there to talk about their names and we wrote a piece about names and it, and then performed it and it was incredible and beautiful and powerful and the kind of thing that would be a little bit more challenging to do in a traditional stage setup I love that. That sounds exciting because it's like you've come up with a whole other form of art. It's not theater, it's not film. At the same time it is both. So that's just remarkable for me. And also I kind of feel like the demands that it it has on you as a performer has sharpened you both. Maybe by the time you're getting back to stage you'll be like, "Wow, what who is this person?" you know? <laughs> so I can't wait for that. I literally cannot wait for that. And also as writers Wanjiku because the stakes because it doesn't take a lot to stage the work. You know, normally if you write a piece, in order to stage it, you need to find the money, da da da, then you have to do justice to that writing. See, we've staged the writing. Okay, see, we move on to the next. Which means that the breadth of material is wider. not so much is loaded onto every piece which also is super cool i love that that's just amazing i'm i'm hoping this is anyone who listens to this that gets inspired i hope this is the beginning of more work because we need that we need to tell our stories you know there's something you do with your words now that we are talking about writing <laughs> you have a way with your words that just just amazes me it's mesmerizing it's beautiful and i have been keeping this i've been storing this moment <laughs> waiting for you to come because i feel like you are the one who will paint out the workshop process for people in a very beautiful and magical way like just how how it feels like to be in that in that space so i was hoping you do that for us like maybe give the listeners an image of their experience the workshop experience Wow, that's a lot of pressure. So, let me pick a workshop with the most memorable elements. So, you show up in the morning, and this was back when it was at the Elephant, but actually, you know, pre-corona, but you know, all of that aside. So, you show up in the morning, and as you enter the house, you hear like all different kinds of sounds emanating from all different like areas like you hear the urutu you hear the guitar you hear a voice it's like it's like it's like pani puri actually it's like pops of flavor and like all these different sounds are like 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 popping they're like bubbles you know it's like poo 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 and you walk in and it's a bit like you're in this like it's like a feast and you don't know where to go and for a moment you kind of stand there and you just take it in because it's you're like this is my life like what the actual right this is what i get to do and then you find your room and in your room are your musical collaborators so each of each one of us has a designated space that is set up 
you know, with the music instruments that we need and, what you know, whatever kind of um, accessories that we require to help make this uh, a, a fruitful process. And um, we, you know, you start kind of working on whatever it is that you're working on. Every now and then, you know, if you're feeling like you need some air, you'll walk out into the garden and you'll see, you know, one group um, maybe practicing something else. You'll hear, find another group doing something else. It's just this real, real space of like creative flourishing and play. And then the food. Oh my gosh, the food. Then you then you meet for lunch and um, the food is delicious because Nairobi MTI always takes such good care of us. Nairobi MTI really understands. And I think it's because they're artists themselves. They really get what it is to, to take care of artists. Um, and then you, you have this workshop session where we're all kind of squeezed in, higgledy-piggledy, some of us on the floor, some of us on chairs, like all kind of mushed together. And kind of sitting and listening to the mentors who are blowing our minds. Like I remember when Fred did um, telling of, I think it was Oedipus Rex, and none of us had ever heard a telling in that way. It was just the most incredible thing. And you listen to music and you, you know, ask questions. And by this point, the community has formed such that you feel comfortable being vulnerable and we are all learning. By the way, when we are there, we are not, you know, Mayonde and Kabaseke and Eric Wanaina. See, we are all like, you know, we are all inter students interested in the craft of this thing. And then the sharing. And the sharing is always a little bit intimidating. And it's where we get to kind of share what we've been working on. And it's taken, it took a lot of like gentle convincing for us to be comfortable to share because we all are artists and we're sensitive about our shit. And, but the, but the, the environment is one of such love and joy and like positive energy and like such like cheerleader vibes that actually you're kind of excited and everybody gets into it. And like, the first time I heard Kabaseke's piece, it changed the atmosphere. Like it actually changed the energy. That created something that had never been created before. The world shifted. All of us witnessed history. And, you know, it may sound hyperbolic, but if you were in that room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And... We just kind of are in awe of the array of sounds that are coming out and the stories and like um, all the range. And then after that, we go and we sit around the bonfire and we sing and we dance and we create music and we pile into the studio and we nostalgize and we kick our shoes off. And, and then the next day it begins again. And we do that for, I don't know, five to 10 days. And at the end of it, you know, it's, we're full. Instead of being empty, we're full. I feel like, I, <laughs> I feel like I want to experience it. <laughs> Only I have. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that, Alea. You just taken me back to a very beautiful time. Oh, thank you, thank you. You actually painted out the elephant so beautifully for me. So, on that note, let's bridge into the end of our podcast. Um, so, I'd like to know, what album or book are you currently reading or listening to? Is it any good? No, yes, mm. why? <laughs> what a great question. Music has really been saving me. Um, these last several months, like really, really, I am so grateful, so grateful to musicians. Um, I have been listening a lot lately to um, Ghazals and Kavalis, and they're both, um, I don't want to do them injustice in how I describe them, but they're somewhat classical forms of music um, from the Indian subcontinent. So Ghazal is a poetic form 
and Kavali is a um uh, it belongs to the Sufi tradition of Islam which is an which is a mystic um tradition and it is an expression of love to the creator and just yesterday after a very long day i was listening to a talk on youtube about rags now i i am of indian ethnicity but i never studied any form of indian music in any way or form so she this this tutor was talking about how rags are melodic beings and it reminded me of the way in which like the greeks maybe would talk about muses you know like this being that wishes to come out into the world and all we are are but vessels and the rag is an expression of an emotion and then i was listening to um to is it uh, this particular or oh, this particular kavali and um it it's called adam and is the most like the most goosebump inducing song i've ever heard in my life i had a, a real like a real visceral reaction to it and then i started doing a little bit of research about what it was that caused that and you know in one of the talks someone was saying how um uh so this particular kavali sorry wanjiku i'm going round and round in circles this particular kavali um talks about how when adam's body was created by allah the soul refused to get into his body until the angels and oh my god i'm getting goosebumps until the angels descended and they sang and when they sang the soul entered the body of adam and the song that they sang forms the start of the qawwali that is sung and they were saying how when you hear music it is a reminder it is a, not a reminder it's as if your soul is experiencing the act of creation again that is so beautiful right <laughs> right oh my god i'm oh. like what So my heart you know, is literally racing right now. <laughs> I know. It's I it's it blew my mind and it made perfect sense. You know, and then he, and then he was talking about how, you know, the ways in which we feed our body. What are we feeding our soul with? And so and we feed our soul with music and with sound. And sound is vibration, right? And and when we know that we are also vibration. So what is the resonance that is being created in the things that we are listening to and exposing our ourselves to in terms of sound? And so I've been feeding myself very intentionally with music that comes from traditions of that comes from maybe a little bit more classic traditions but not classic western music because that doesn't speak to my soul the way that some of the traditions that I belong to. And um As a writer, as somebody who writes, I I live very much in my head and music allows me to live in my body. And so I am so grateful for that. Um so yes, music a lot. Coke Studio Pakistan has some great fusions of qawalis and ghazals and like it's kind of like the entry level, like the you know, not the not the super traditional but really interesting fusion um uh elements um the qawwali maestros that i'm listening to right now are farid and abu muhammad um for ghazals ali sethi is just mesmerizing in terms of books um, i've been finding it hard to read i'll be honest with you um me too man i have many books open I I I had started reading Dragonfly Sea by Yvonne Awar and then I put it down oh it's so beautiful I had put it down a while ago because I'm also writing a story that's in that space and Yvonne's voice is so evocative that I was scared it would I wouldn't be able to hear my own voice so I had put it down but I've picked it up again and it's really beautiful I mean it's again soul feeding you know 
I'm also reading a lot online. There's some, I mean, one of the things that has been really an incredible gift during this season is the generosity of knowledge. And people are writing a lot and it's available in ways that it has not been available with the same visibility before. So, uh, yeah, I'm grateful for the thinkers that are, that are writing. That's true. And I'd like to say something about what you said about music. I'm having the same reaction anytime I'm blocked and I, I get into my head so much and I start questioning every decision I'm making. But every time I sit down and put on my headphones and just listen to music, it just, it just goes like all, you're just writing. It's like you're on a drug and you're just moving and everything just feels you're in the you're present. I feel like that's what music does. It makes you just be in the moment. And that's just beautiful. So thank you for sharing all this. It feels like I'm going to have a very lovely weekend. <laughs> because that's when I'm going to dive into this. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Anjiku. I love it's for it's always such a pleasure for me as well. Thank you so much. You're such an attentive and like n- not just attentive but like help me see things that I never even saw before in the ways in which you like open the conversation and guide it and I always leave feeling like I've like learned new things and seen things in new ways. So thank you so much, Wanjiku. Oh, thank you, Alea. That means so much to me. And the same applies to you. I feel like I've learned so much. I feel like my soul has been replenished. I've been missing my Alea. (laughs) We must make crazy, like, house-eating pizza together soon. Yes, please. (laughs) Let it not take over the house, though. Uh, So... I'm going to say goodbye now um, to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been the NBUMTI podcast. And this has been the Backstage Series. Till next time, good vibes, love, and light. Bye.